Good morning, everyone. My name is Evan, my wife, Sandy, and I have the joy and privilege, really, of leading this church with uh, just a beautiful team uh, who feels like family. Just over two weeks ago, you guys, we gathered outdoors right here and over the internet right there. Welcome, guys, joining us online. Um, And we gathered to celebrate the God who's with us, Christmas Eve. We finished the gathering. We sang uh, Silent Night, but it was preceded by a harp. (laughs) Like the harp is like literally the sound of peace on earth. And then we all sang Silent Night together, uh, which has those lines about resting in the thick peace from heaven that has come through the advent of God with us. And we sang that and it felt like an, after 2020, it felt like an act of quiet resistance in a time of insecurity and anxiety. It really did. might've been my favorite moment of 2020 with you all. And in that moment, we also lit candles for two reasons. Number one, to honor the unity of the church. Millions of Christians all lit candles in the name of Jesus that same night. And number two, to remind ourselves, as the scriptures teach, that the light of Jesus shines in the darkness and the darkness did not and still cannot overcome Jesus, okay? This is why we lit those candles. And so as 2020 came to a close, we're like, bring on 2021, and now 10 days into 2021, you're like, bring on 2022. Like, like that's, uh, yeah, at least that's a tempta- temptation for sure. Like Aaliyah said, and there's this sense like, what could possibly be next? Political tension ratcheting up. We still have the pandemic. Um, the daily headlines, it's like, what is next? It's anyone's guess. And the reality is, you guys, there's so much we don't know. So much we don't know. So we gather around the scriptures here, bread and cup, prayer, one another, to remind ourselves of what we do know. This is why we gather. So so this is why we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 10 right now, chapter 10, and listen to Paul as he reminds the church where we came from, who we are, and what we can know. This is the point of this chapter. So the second Sunday of the year, it's like Paul's reaching into 2021 from the year one or 60 from the first century. And he's, and he's speaking to our time, you guys. Here's where you came from. Here's who you are. And just in case you're forgetting because there's so much noise, here's what you can know. So he's writing to ancient Corinthians, but this is for San Diegans today. These Christians were sons and daughters of the living God. Little context. They had access to the power of God. They had the Holy Spirit. But they were getting sucked into the wrong political narratives and dividing over secular sexual ethics and debates about personal freedoms and personal rights. And they were losing their own story. They were losing the plot line. They were forgetting the richness of being daughters of God and sons of God. And Paul's like, you guys are about to repeat the same mistakes of your ancestors. This is what this chapter is doing. Remember the Exodus story, Prince of Egypt, deliver us, Moses. He's like, remember the, the mistakes that your ancestors made in that story? You're about to revisit them. Mistakes that kept them from experiencing life to the full. To use Jesus's term, life to the fullest. We don't want to miss this. Relationships with God and others that are flourishing. We don't want to miss this. So 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. We're going to walk through this chapter and then end with some reflections for our church as we step into 2021, you guys. Verse 1. Let's read verses 1 through 4. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, 
and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. That rock was Christ. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, remember the Exodus story. Remember your ancestors. Don't forget what happened to them. They were enjoying God's protection. A cloud of God by day is pretty rad. That's incredible privilege. And then they enjoyed God's redemption. He literally parted an ocean for them. And in a sense, Paul says, this was their baptism, their immersion into God's full abundant life. They experienced God. They were in God's life. And then not only that, but they ate spiritual food and drink. That's what he calls the manna, you know, the bread from heaven that they ate in the wilderness. He calls it spiritual food. Why? Remember in the Bible, spiritual doesn't mean invisible. Spiritual means from God. They ate provision from God. In other words, communion, the the water and the rock, he calls it participation or fellowship or communion. He's like, these guys were baptized. These guys took communion. These guys were fully invested in the life of God. And, 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 and look at verse five, look what happens. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. This is not an easy passage, you guys. Paul's like, your ancestors were fully immersed, baptized in the life of God eating and drinking of his provision, but they still ended up dead in the desert and missed out on life to the full in God's kingdom. And so right now, if you, you know, you might be questions and you're like, Evan, are you saying baptized Christians who have experienced true spiritual life can lose their connection to God, can lose their salvation? That's a huge question. And, and it's a little bit distracting from Paul's point. Here's Paul's point. According to Paul, all the privilege from God in the world, all the supernatural provision that the Israelites enjoyed, it still didn't stop them from widespread faithlessness and disobedience, which led an entire generation of Israelites to die in the wilderness, not being able to enter the promised land. So let's connect those dots for us. Paul's using these things as examples for us. What does this mean for us? Well, remember, if you've been following this First Corinthians series, the language we've been using is when Christians, like self-proclaimed Jesus followers, raise your hand if that's you, you refer to yourself as a Jesus follower, Christian, or other similar term. Great. Well, when you remain in willful, unrepentant disobedience to the way of Jesus, Paul's like, there is no security for you. The consequences can be massive willful, perpetual, ongoing disobedience to the way of Jesus is not compatible with bearing the name, is what he's saying here. That's what he's trying to tell us. Hard message, you guys. And he continues, look at verse six. He says, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And right there is the key that unlocks the chapter. That word examples is the key. He wants 21st century San Diegans to look back at Exodus and learn from their mistakes because they're repeatable. Their mistakes are repeatable. He doesn't want us to set our hearts on evil things, to use his words, as they did. Okay, what are these evil things? (laughs) Paul's super dark right now. Feels very intense. Um, What mistakes? Look at verse 7. Do not be 
idolaters, he says. We don't use that word anymore. How many of you guys have trouble like resisting the little Buddha in the Thai food joint when you pick up your takeout? Like, oh, I just feel drawn to the Buddha. So yeah, we don't use the word idolatry regularly anymore, at least not literally like they did, uh, unless you do. Because paganism is still alive and well, and so is idol worship. But for the most part, in enlightened Western cultures, the idol isn't the draw, the statue. But he still says, don't be idolaters. We have to figure out what that means for us. Verse 8, we, sh- we should not commit sexual immorality. What does that mean? Remember our shorthand term, sexual immorality, the Greek word pornea? For us, all through the Bible, it means sex with someone you are not married to. That's the definition Jesus embraces and Paul embraces. From Genesis all the way on, he pulls it forward and says, this is my command for the church. What else? He says, verse 9, we shouldn't test Christ, which looks like verse 10, do not grumble against God, okay? So here's a list, idolatry, sexual morality, and grumbling against God. Why this list? Why is he like, these are especially dangerous? Why? Well, from the text, the answer seems to be, all of these are directly connected to this word we don't use anymore, which is idolatry. What is idolatry? Well, when Paul uses that word, they knew what he meant. He was pointing back to the golden calf incident. You guys, again, know your Ten Commandments story. When Moses went up to meet with God, he's like, don't worry, I'll be back. Just wait patiently and be faithful. And what did they do? They weren't patient. They weren't faithful. And they had an orgy around a golden statue of a cow. And so God's like, yeah, no, that's not humanizing behavior. (laughs) That is not the way of flourishing in my family. And so when Paul says idolatry, it's all uh, connected to that. And so here's the deal. This idolatry, this is why it's so insidious. Listen to this. The idolatry ultimately spiraled out of control in the Israelites to the point where they were dreaming about being slaves again. They wanted Egypt back. Can you imagine that? A community of slaves that were freed now want to go back to slavery. The levels of dysfunction there, the levels of delusion there. They're miraculously saved by a demonstration of power over 10 plagues and literal ocean being parted. And after all that, there came a point where they're daydreaming fondly about bowls of soup in their slave quarters. What on earth caused that level of delusion? And Paul uses one word for what caused it. Idolatry. That's the word that he uses. Idolatry makes children of God say, we don't want to wait for God's rule. We don't trust it will be better than what we have planned. We're going to go back to trusting human government, where we at least have our own personal right to a bowl of soup and whatever else. Idolatry made Israelites forget how horrible their lives were under Pharaoh. This is what idolatry does. It makes God's kids forget things. We forget God's plot line. We forget our identity as his loved daughters and sons. And we forget how dehumanizing the idols are actually for us. The best analogy I've heard for this is a drug addiction. Idolatry is like a drug addiction. Demonic beings are like the dealers. And idols are like the brand or the product. 
and the dealer makes big promises and the first product's always free, right? And then you start paying more than you can afford until you spiral away from your own humanity and your relationships. And you start calling good things evil and evil things good and everybody can see it but you. That's what idolatry does. It causes the opposite of human flourishing. It dehumanizes. So, so this is why Paul's so urgent. He loves Corinth. And if he were alive today, his heart would be bleeding for San Diego in this moment. Keep reading verse 11. He says, these things happen to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. What does that mean? It's definitely a phrase we don't use. Um, What does he mean that we are the people on whom the culmination of the ages has come? Here's what he means. He means all the things the Old Testament stories were hoping for and pointing for, we have it. We've seen the crucifixion and resurrection of God in the flesh. We have the Holy Spirit and we have the church. All things they did not have. These were the fulfillments of the signs that everybody was longing for and we have it. So he's like, wouldn't it be especially tragic if we got this far only to spiral? You guys, this is not an easy passage. I remember, I think one of the guys in one of the communities who was watching on the live stream a couple months ago, he's, when we first started back in 1 Corinthians in the, in the fall, and he's like, 1 Corinthians has no chill, but we're here for it. Like a little text in the YouTube chat. I'm like, that's literally, 1 Corinthians has no chill. It is so intense. It's not an easy passage. Up until this moment, Paul's like unleashing a barrage of warnings about dehumanizing behavior that breaks relationship with God and others down. But then we get to verse 13, you guys. Verse 13, (laughs) powerful promise that honestly, if it weren't for verse 13, I could not receive the chapter. But this makes it make sense. You ready? Let's read verse 12 and then 13. Here's verse 12. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Here it comes. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So right away, it's important to acknowledge that sometimes this verse gets way oversimplified. If you've been around the church very long, you probably heard the phrase, God will never give you more than you can handle, right? That's a huge misreading of this verse. That is not what it says. It gives the imp- that's, that misreading, that misunderstanding, it gives the impression that God will never give you more than you can handle on your own. Uh, but tell that to anyone who's been through meaning, seemingly meaningless suffering or Christian persecution or even just an overbearing boss who gives you three times more work than you can reasonably do. That's literally more than you can handle. Like, God will never give me more than I can handle. Give me a break. No, this verse is saying something much more freeing, more realistic, more heavenly. Paul is saying there is no temptation, no seduction to sin that is inescapable. There is always the option of yielding yourself completely to the Holy Spirit who will provide a way for you to avoid failure. Always. There's always an option. 
Always. Because God is faithful, he says. That means, what does it mean that God is faithful, you guys? When we say Jesus is faithful, what we're saying is Jesus is fully committed to your flourishing. Jesus is committed to your humanizing, you becoming more and more fully you. Jesus is committed to that process so much that he has given the third person of the Trinity in full to be with us, the Holy Spirit. Paul says, when you're tempted, whatever it is, God will always give a way out. So what's the way out? I want you to notice, what's the way out of temptation God's get? This is really important. Is the way out so that you don't have to feel it anymore? So that you don't have to bear it? Is that the way out and escape? Actually, no. According to Paul, the way out of temptation is so that you can endure it. That's the way out. The way out is actually through it, not escaping it. What does this mean? It means, according to Paul, the temptation, the test, whatever trial you're facing right now, it might not go away. It's never promised in Scripture that God will just remove your test. What is promised is when you turn to God and trust in the power of His Spirit, He will give you everything you need to fully endure. You do not have to fail. You do not have to give in ever. This is the promise. That's the promise of 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that makes all the rest of the chapter make sense. And based on that promise, he says, verse 14, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. You can do it. We can do this. We can be the community that is collectively running away from idolatry. And he says, verse 15, I'm speaking to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Isn't the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Okay, what's he saying here? Let's follow his logic. It is beautiful here. You got to see what he's doing. Paul is holding up idolatry. He's holding up idolatry. He's showing you all the facets of it like a dark gemstone. He's turning it so you can see the angles. And he's saying this idolatry in all its forms is a fast track to dehumanizing yourself. You actually become less human and and the more you give yourself to sin and destructive behavior and sexual morality and grumbling against God, you become less you. And he's turning that gem and he's holding up that idolatry gem and he's saying, run from that. And then he holds up the bread and cup of Jesus and he's like, run to this. One of the most important things for any people in recovery is not just what are you free from, but what are you free for? Jesus sets you free from sin for loving relationship. The problem with our ideas of freedom in the West, especially in America, and you can see the fruit of that this week, is that American freedom is often framed as freedom from authority for independence. I'm my own person. That can half the time be great, other half it can be deadly, as we've seen. Biblical freedom is freedom from idolatry for relationship around the bread and cup, around one another, around God. That is biblical freedom. When we run away from idols, when we call sin what it is, 
And when we call evil, evil, and injustice, injustice, and we run away from it as a community, and we call God good, and we trust the Spirit to give us endurance every week around the table, bread and cup, we actually become more human. We give ourselves to God, God's humanizing project. Paul writes the Ephesians, this is us becoming one new humanity. That's the Spirit's work. And we can give ourselves to that as his partners. And you guys, we can know this. In an age when there is so much unknowable information, we can know this. We can keep coming back to it. We can know it. Do you see what Paul's doing? He's not being a helicopter parent, giving a list of sins for the heck of it. Paul is opening a gateway to fully thrive as the family of Jesus. Whatever political division is going on in your house, in your workplace, on your social media feed, whatever, whatever second civil war may or may not break out, whatever sexual ethics or secular ideologies are circulating, we can know, we can trust that God is faithful to give endurance to his kids who trust his spirit. We can know this. As we call sin, sin, and as we call God good, this is how we participate in the life of God and in one another's lives. Not a surface participation in community, but an actual community in the Spirit. And so Paul gets us there. He inspires us to this by pointing to his own life. That's, that's, that's a bold move, Paul. Like He points to himself in this moment to inspire us. And we're not going to read verse 18 through 32, there's a, a very culturally specific case Paul's making for idolatry in Corinth. You can definitely read it and apply it to today, but read it on your own. I would encourage you to read on your own this week, verses 18 through 32, because the whole point of chapters 8 through 10, Paul's saying, release yourself from your rights. Knowing your rights is only half the story because you can use your rights arrogantly and stomp others with your rights. No, no, release your rights for the sake of the other. And he ends up pointing to himself as the example. In verse 33, he says, For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. And then verse 1 of chapter 11, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. What has this chapter been about? Bad examples looking back at Egypt and looking back at grumbling and pornea and idolatry. And he's like, don't do this. Run from that. It will dehumanize you and those you claim to love. Run to the body and blood of Jesus week in, week out. Keep Jesus at the focus of your mind's eye, the center of your prayer life. Ask people in your community, what is Jesus doing in your life to draw out communion? And in doing this, we're following the right example. And we're being transformed. More and more human. More and more flourishing. This is the mindset of a church. Park Hill Church. I want, let's be this kind of church. A church that uproots idolatry lovingly in community and calls injustice what it is. 
and calls God good and runs toward one another in a time when no one really knows what voices to trust. That's where we're at. In a time when so many Christians, not just Americans, but American Christians are getting sucked into all kinds of political spin and secular sexual ethics. And followers of Jesus are becoming emotionally overwhelmed and even losing relationships over like debates about global conspiracies that none of us can ever be certain of, you guys. So in this moment of unknowledge, in this moment of unknowledge, Paul calls us to root ourselves in what we do know. We know that what's the real conspiracy? The real conspiracy is satanic, and it's Satan's goal to get us focused on global meta-whatevers we can basically do nothing about and neglect the primary work of prayer, scripture, bread, cup, and loving neighbor. That's the real conspiracy. Follow me, Paul says, as I follow Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Resisted idolatry, released his rights. He became human as God. That's releasing the rights of glory. We follow Jesus. And in this way, he overcame evil with good. What can we do about the evil that we see? It's not much. Like, what can we as a church really do? It's really not much, which actually is a blessing because it makes us focused. Do not be overcome by evil, but in our lives, in our community, overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good, Romans 12, 21. That's what we do. Don't be overcome. Don't be overwhelmed by evil. Overcome evil with good. You have the Holy Spirit. I have the Holy Spirit. We know what good is. We can call good, good. We can call evil, evil. And we can love love one another well. So what does this look like practically as we come to the table right now? I'm going to give a call to action and a reflection, a prayer that might help you. It's helped me in times of anxiety in the last few weeks. This has helped me a lot, actually the last few months. But first, the call to action. Aliyah mentioned it during the announcements. We are a church who seeks to be with Jesus in intimacy, become like Jesus through community, and then do what Jesus did in justice. And so today, you guys, we are releasing a video that I would invite all of you to watch Because in the video, several of our partners all over the world that are furthering Jesus's name by overcoming evil with good very practically, doing justice, about 10 of our partners are in that video specifically thanking you for getting behind them as a community. And so uh, just just as as a yay God kind of thing, like just watch the video prayerfully, invite the Holy Spirit into your moment as you watch that. And then the call to action in the video, I'm going to give it even right now, is commit this year. What's one thing you as an individual or you with your community or you with your family, one thing on our justice page that you can commit to getting your hands dirty and doing the work of Jesus in that sphere? Whether it is calling Generate Hope and seeing, hey, what does... What do your safe houses for women need in this season? As it's a cold season, what do you guys need? And every quarter you check back in. Whatever it is very practically, 
we choose not to become overwhelmed by evil in this, in this year, but overcome evil with concrete good in the name of Jesus. Whatever it is, pick one thing, give yourself to it. Not just talking money, give yourself to it. What would that look like? So I know that's not glamorous, you know, but it's the eternal option. It may not be the glamorous option. It's the eternal one. Jesus is building a kingdom that will never fade. And he's doing it through the righteous acts of his children. It's definitely the quietest option. That's for sure. So the second thing I want to leave us with, and the band can come back up and start just kind of playing music, is uh, if you're finding yourself anxious, raise your hand. I'm raising my hand not, not to like lead you to raise your hand, but I'm confessing Evan Wickham, anxious guy right now. Like I'm feeling anxious and I can't sleep very well last couple nights. And I can't pinpoint exactly why. So I come to prayers like this and I'd like to invite you into this prayer. Um, it's been helpful for me in reminding myself of what I can know. What I can, and here's what you can know, okay? What do we know? If you can take a deep breath and maybe uncross your arms or legs, that's not for any kind of mystical positioning. It's just like circulation stuff. But like, uh, like take a deep, just take a deep breath and, and maybe palms up just as a, as a sign to your own soul of like, I'm open. I'm open to what God wants this year, to what God wants for me. God loves me. Can, can you say that? We used to sing Jesus loves me in church. And that's really affirming. It's beautiful. Just say, Jesus loves me. Amen. The scriptures tell you so. So what do we know? Let's remind ourselves of what we can know. We know God is with us. And God is calm and not surprised. God is not only at peace, God is peace. And if God can be calm and at peace, then we can too. We know that we'll be inheriting a kingdom that can't be shaken. We who trust in God and not the uncertainty of wealth or the uncertainty of any human government or power structure. We know that all wealth and every government changes. Always. We know this. This is what we know. Eventually, one way or another, all human governments are shaken. And God's people have lived and worked under every form of government since time began. Oppressive governments, violent ones, tyrannical ones, and peaceful ones. And history tells us that the church does better under poverty and affliction than it does with power and influence. And by better, I mean the church is generally more holy and more devoted to King Jesus under poverty and affliction. We know this. So no matter what happens for tomorrow or on January 20th, Inauguration Day, or in the weeks and months to come, we follow a God who is not worried. And we are part of an ancient family 
that knows how to thrive under every kind of condition. And if we don't thrive, then guess what? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So really, Christians, you and me, we should be the most resilient people on the planet. So if you're finding yourself anxious today, I'd love to close in a prayer by Reinhold Niebuhr. This prayer has helped me a lot since November. And I think it could help us. It's called the Serenity Prayer. Let's just pray this in your mind as I lead. God, give me grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed and courage to change the things which should be changed and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. Here's the rest of the prayer. People don't often pray this part. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting that you'll make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. See that difference? God offers reasonable happiness in this life and supreme happiness in the next for those who surrender to his will. And when he says, I take the world as it is, not as it should be, or not as I would have it, that doesn't mean we're passive about justice. That doesn't mean we're passive about preaching the gospel. We press into those things. But it means we trust that God will make everything right one day while we can't do it all. Because we know that the light of Jesus shines in the darkness and it cannot, was not, and will never be overcome. And he calls us the light of the world. We know this. We know this. So you have the Holy Spirit, which means you have everything you need to overcome. Aren't you glad we know this? Come on. Makes us way more okay not knowing about tomorrow. Amen. Holy Spirit, come. We sing this next song, Overjoyed, that you are with us. And then we're going to eat and drink the bread and the cup, knowing that you're with us and that you're for us. Have your way in our gathering. Have your way in our hearts. Have your way in our year, we pray. In Jesus' name. Let's sing. And after this song, we'll eat and drink.